Aren't the Psalms beautiful? I have counted four, at least four so far that we have used and alluded to in worship. And, uh, and today we come to the one we know best by far. Uh, it's been up here all summer on our worship banners. And uh, let's just begin by reciting this together um, straight out of the King James Version that many of you will know just in your, whoops, in your hearts. Okay, let's recite this together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. It's July. And uh, today, I think I'm going to continue a tradition that I think I have running six years now. It's hard for me to make it out of July without using a sermon illustration from the Tour de France, which which is closing up tomorrow and is something that uh, I spend a little time in every July paying attention to early in the morning. Uh, and, and today, there's something uh, that I think will be useful for our psalm. Last two days, Friday and Thursday, were the spectacular days of the Tour de France uh, going into the high Alp Mountains, where all the drama is, the excitement, truly at the, that point is when you find out who the real you know, contenders are and who the pretenders were, um, all those kinds of things. So the drama has been certainly in the mountains. It's what we all wait for, we can't wait, and, and it did not disappoint. Yesterday especially was, was incredible. But also another spectacular thing, spectacular every year, but this year especially spectacular, and Sharon caught this and texted me about a week ago, were the crashes. You guys seen bicycle crashes at high speed? <laughs> Have you participated in bicycle crashes at high speed? Um, look, at, look at these. Um, yeah, a lot of that. Um, <laughs> Some, some more of that. These are the ones, by the way, that I could show in church because this year there were some just brutal, brutal images. Um, some of you who are watching or maybe even on the news have seen the guy up there uh, in the top left corner um, was actually thrown into that barbed wire fence because a TV crew swerved at the wrong moment. I've never seen anything like it. And he went flying barbed wire. Whoa. Oh. Yeah, and uh, people off in the trees, you know, uh, coming out of ditches. The guy on the bottom was one of the high contenders, broke his collarbone, he was out. Um, and just an assortment, another high contender out from injuries, an assortment of all these things. And here, here's, what, here's why I'm showing you, you this more than just, it's crazy. Um, if you look at the roads that they're on, and even especially in this first one, you notice something, because if you follow the Tour de France, going up and over the mountains and then coming back down, ascending, this year I heard, the highest I heard was 117 kilometers per hour descending off the mountain, which I think is about 70 miles per hour on their bicycles. So they're doing these amazing, crazy things, 
Guess where most of, I would say a majority of the crashes happen? On the 70 mile an hour downhill? No. On the ridiculously difficult uphills? On the turns. If you've ever tried going around a turn at 30 miles an hour with 180 other riders. Crazy. But no. Most of these crashes, not all of them, some are spectacular going downhill and everything like you would expect, but many of these crashes happen on the boring, flat roads where nothing exciting is happening. Why? And here's where I think we can learn something. Because when you're going day after day, 200 kilometers, sometimes 150, 70 miles over flat, boring roads, nobody's racing for the win. It's just a day you got to get through. What happens after a while? You become complacent, lose concentration, and someone will be going along and drafting and maybe look over here or grab a bottle and just touch the back wheel, and then you get that. Most of these crashes, it's amazing, and I think it is an interesting lesson. Most of these crashes happen on the flat, boring, everyday roads that these guys ride miles and miles and miles of. Um, They say... Uh, that the slower crashes actually hurt the worst. And my one decent crash, besides getting hit by a car, my one decent crash that I've had was, was actually a slow, uh, a slow crash. And uh, it was at the top, coming to the top of a big hill. So under 20 miles an hour and feeling good that I had gotten to the top and l- looked away a little bit and there was some construction where the two sides of the street were unlevel and tire hit that little edge, boom. And I fell over probably at like 17 miles an hour, which is considered a slow crash in bicycling world. And those hurt bad. See, when you crash at 30 miles an hour, you slide. <laughs> so you lose some skin and it's not, it doesn't feel good and it's not pretty, but it's not a serious injury. When you crash at slow speeds, you slam into the ground and it bruises deeper. Which also, I think, is a lesson. It's often in the times when life is just the average, ordinary, every day, that the stuff can catch us off guard, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about mountains, we've talked about deserts, all the spectacular kinds of things, but where do we live most of our lives? The ordinary, everyday kind of things, right? The plains, the meadows, the flat roads of the Tour de France. And that's what we're going to talk about. And so today, I actually think that Psalm 23 is a great psalm for this, Focus on the flat roads, the everyday, the ordinary times of life. First, because in the content itself, the psalm, I think it talks about everyday, ordinary kinds of days. And we'll talk about that. But a second reason is this. This is a very well-known psalm, isn't it? And as we repeat it, sometimes we catch the beauty, but sometimes we know this psalm so well, like other things we know well, that as we say it, we get used to it, and it just kind of passes us by. And it's easy for us to miss the beauty of the psalm because it's too familiar, right? which also in itself is a little bit of a lesson for life. Sometimes we take for granted the everyday ordinary beauty that is all around us because we're so used to it and we just pass on by. So Psalm 23 will be a lesson for us today in several ways because life is full of opportunities to see beauty and goodness around us. And sometimes we miss it. In fact, let's uh, let's start with verse 5 of this psalm that you know so well. And if you want to follow in your Bibles, have it open to Psalm 23. But remember this, and here's a different translation. Hopefully it wakes us up a little bit because it's not the one we're used to. 
Verse 5, you set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil and my cup overflows. Verse 5, what's the image the psalmist is painting for us here? Uh, A table, a feast, even in the face of foes, which we know David and the other psalmists uh, faced quite a bit. King James, we've heard so often, anoint my head with oil. And anointing, we think of a ritual kind of anointing, like Samuel would do for David and the kings, or uh, we anoint people who are ill. But in this case, that's not the kind of anointing they're talking about. The other way oils were used is in a very luxurious way. I mean, these were the spas of the ancient world. Uh, Someone who um, wanted the treatment of royalty would be anointed with oil would be moistened with oil, their hair, their skin, and everything. And the, the oils would smell uh, with perfume, and it would, you know, soften the skin and everything. So this is a picture of luxury, right, of, of the good life. My cup overflows. You remember my sharing that my sister and I had a goal for a Thanksgiving dinner when we hosted, that there would be Martinelli's for everyone, and as much as you want, right? Cups would be overflowing with Martinelli's sparkling uh, cider, because that's, you know, the, the height of luxury is to have enough Martinelli's that everyone can drink. This is the picture here, right? My cup overflows. I am anointed with oil. There is a feast set before me. In other words, David, the psalmist here, is saying God desires richness in life. Not the kind of wealth that we run after, but the kind of joy and abundance that Jesus talked about when he said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So it's important to think of all this kind of thing that the psalmist is talking about, all the goodness and all the things that God does for us in the context of the opening line, right? What is this psalm about? The Lord is my shepherd. I want not. I do not want. I lack nothing, some translations say. Important thing here to keep in mind. We're going to look at a few of these lines here. In the ancient world, it was actually quite common to use the metaphor as a shep- of a shepherd to talk about leaders of all kind, of kings and priests, even gods were talked about as shepherds of the people. The idea, of course, is that just as a shepherd provides for and cares for his sheep, so these leaders and rulers and kings and, and gods were supposed to be caring for and providing for and looking after all of their people. That's what you do when you're a leader. You look after and protect your people and your subjects. They're supposed to have the best interests of their subjects in mind. But, of course, ancient world, present world, whatever, do leaders always have the best interest of all their subjects in mind as they lead? No. We know this world very well, right? People have been abused and used and neglected by their leaders through all time. So here the psalmist is saying something interesting, right? This is how we should be hearing this. Regardless of the success and failings of other shepherd leaders of the world, for me, the Lord, Yahweh, God, creator of heaven and earth, he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. And as my shepherd, he takes care of me and therefore I won't want, I won't lack anything because God is the kind of shepherd who cares for his subjects, his sheep, his people and takes care of them. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he later says, I am the good shepherd. We often concentrate on, I am the good shepherd, but lots of people talked about being shepherds. Jesus was saying, I am the good shepherd. 
You people have seen shepherds all around you, whether it's religious leaders or political figures or whatever, that don't care for you. I'm the shepherd who is good and cares for all of my sheep. So then the rest of the psalm is a description and an expansion of just how God is this good shepherd who cares for his people. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Just a continuation of the the metaphor, the poem here. This is what the shepherd does. Quiet waters, cool meadows. He refreshes my soul or he restores my soul. This word soul is nefesh in Hebrew, which is the very life breath that God breathes into the first human being. So this is the breath of God, the life blood of people. In other words, he's saying he brings my life back from the brink of lifelessness, lifelessness. Again, God is moving us. This is what God does. This is his interest, moving us from lifelessness, lifelessness. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right here. Moving us from that, the brink of lifelessness to authentic, full, abundant life, the kind of life that Jesus talked about, right? Again, this is what God is doing. And now here's the line that grabs me from this psalm for this morning. He leads me on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I think here is where we can think about the flat roads of life, the everyday, the ordinary kinds of experiences that we have. He leads me on the paths of righteousness. Again, the word righteousness is rooted in the expectations of what a king is supposed to be. A king should be righteous. Another way of translating the same word is a king should be just. A king, a leader, a shepherd is supposed to take care of all his people and his subjects. In other words, they will be, they will be fair and just and ensure that all of their subjects are provided for and cared for equally and adequately. But kings and rulers fail to do justice to all their people. So the hope grew. Here, here's the, the Jewish theology. Here's what's happening in the Old Testament. The hope grew that one day God, Yahweh, the righteous and just shepherd king, would come and judge the world with justice and bring about the righteousness and goodness and fairness to all people so that no one would be trampled on and left out. They begin to hope none of these human kings are going to do it, but someday God will come and be the righteous and just king of all this world. And of course, the people who served this righteous God were called to also be righteous and just in their living. Perhaps in Psalm 23, we hear David, who was a shepherd king, recognizing his need for God's help as he was a king undertaking that difficult task of leadership of a people. He recognized he needed God in order for him to be a righteous and just shepherd king and to be able to take care of all his people. He needed God to be led on paths of righteousness. And so we too, when we need and ask in the psalm to be led on paths of righteousness, we mean that We need God to show us the way to be righteous and just in the way that we live, just like the good shepherd is, right? Here's how Jesus, the good shepherd, put it in Luke chapter 4. Remember this? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, the good shepherd, said, I am here to bring good news for all the people. Those who have been left out by the leaders of this world, I'm here for them. And my people are to do the same. In his life, Jesus demonstrated that there, there is an intimate connection between having a close and personal relationship with God and having and living in such a way that brings good news to people who have not gotten good news for a long time. To be close to God means to go and give good news to people who need it and who have been left out. Here's something Jesus also says in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give peace as the world gives. And surely, even if he didn't use the Hebrew word, maybe he was speaking in Hebrew, maybe Aramaic, but surely in, surely in his mind, he had the Hebrew word for peace, which is what? Anyone know? Shalom, right? And as we've talked about before, this is this beautiful Hebrew concept, peace. It means wholeness, right relationship. So to have shalom is to have wholeness and peace in my relationship with God and also wholeness and peace in my relationships that are around me, in my family, with my neighbors, and with my whole community. And if one bit of that is missing, there is not shalom. So to have peace, and Jesus said, I leave you peace, is to find wholeness, not only in my life, but in the lives around me and the community and with God. And the promise of the Old Testament idea of peace is that when you find this peace, that is where the beauty and joy and luxury of life is to be found. Wholeness with God, wholeness with each other. The beautiful, beautiful idea is also summed up in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Uh, the first four, our relationship with God. The, the next six, our relationship with others. Have you ever thought about how if you were stranded on a desert island all by yourself, the last six commandments would have absolutely no relevance to you? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> you can't murder. You can't bear false witness to a neighbor. There's no coveting of what other people have, right? Right? Which is to point out that all six of those commandments have everything to do with how we live with our neighbor, how we interact with other people. Will there be justice for the people around us? Will there be wholeness and shalom in our communities? First four about me and my relationship with God and wholeness there. And the other six about wholeness with my neighbor and with the people around me and justice and righteousness and paths. Even Sabbath itself has parts that say, hey, the Sabbath is not just for you. Make sure that your resting doesn't cause your whole household to go work harder for you. Something some of us can think about sometimes. So shalom, peace, righteousness, all of this. This is what's buried in that little phrase in the, the Good Shepherd Psalm. So what though? What does that look like for, for us? seems to me that this is righteousness, justice, Peace, shalom, all these things. Big ideas, but really where they get worked out is in those everyday little ordinary experiences of the flat road kind of experiences in our life. Each day, aren't we presented with myriads and myriads of different choices we can make, different opportunities to do something that is good and right for someone else, for ourselves, for God, or to not do it? 
Every day we have opportunities and paths that open to us. And some of those are paths of righteousness and justice for family members or neighbors or others. And others lead the other way. And we can choose to take paths of justice and righteousness, as the psalm says. Sometimes we just call it doing the right thing, right? Which again is one of those very everyday ordinary things that sometimes we just take for granted and we don't concentrate on because, well, you know, we're Christians so we do the right thing, but man, how many opportunities do we have in our lives, in everyday experience, to really think about doing right for someone else? And again, the promise is in doing those things we find the joy and the beauty and luxury of life. The prophet Micah called it, very familiar to all of us, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, right? These are the things God asks and requires of us. Jesus, quoting the Hebrew scriptures, called it loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. The Bible is chock full of this very simple everyday kind of thought, isn't it? We have mountains, we have valleys, we have the extraordinary experiences of life, but every single day is rather ordinary, and in those days are extraordinary opportunities to do justice and righteousness and good for the people around us. There are great heroes. You know, most of us think of ourselves as very ordinary. We are not Martin Luther King Jr. We are not Mother Teresa who can do these great acts of goodness in life. But every one of us can be champions of righteousness, justice, goodness in our own lives. We can be bearers of shalom and and peace in little tiny things around us. One more thing from the Tour de France. There are these guys called the domestiques. They are not the ones who will win. Becky actually asked me this week, uh, are all 200 of those riders going to the Tour de France thinking that they could win? And uh, if they are, they're delusional. (laughs) No, the answer is everyone has nine people on a team and probably eight of those are there knowing they are not going to win. They're there to help their one guy. And even most of the teams don't even have dreams. Probably six, six or seven guys know they actually have a chance of winning. So most of these guys are there to do other kinds of work for their team. The domestiques, every single day, day in and day out, they're not getting the fame on the mountains. They're not getting the fame in the time trials. They are simply there mile after mile after mile avoiding crashes and then going to the front and taking the brunt of the wind for their teammates, going all the way to the back of the peloton, which sometimes can stretch out almost a mile, and going to get water bottles and filling up their jersey with water bottles and then making their way back through 200 riders to their teammates and handing them out. Not everybody is a big hero, but everybody plays an important part in the process. But here's the, here's the big difference between what we're talking about, the Bible's vision for us and for life, and the Tour de France in cycling and in sports in general. In these kinds of places, the, the theory is, if you are the strongest, that means everyone else is going to work for you, <laughs> right? If you're the best, like Andy Schleck, Cadell Evans, all your team is there to work for you. They serve you on the big days. And of course, Jesus' vision for us was the exact opposite, right? That those of us who are the strongest, those who have been blessed with much, to, to those who have been given much, much is required, right? Those who are the strongest then turn around and serve everybody else who is in need. That's the vision of walking in paths of righteousness or justice. In youth class this morning, um, 
the material we were looking at, suggested there's an important principle in having great, loving relationships with the people around us. Okay, So just like in real estate, you've heard it a thousand times, right? In real estate, the three most important things are location, 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 right? So we've heard that. They suggested in good, loving relationships, the three most important things are observance, observance, observance. Interesting, isn't it? What are they saying? If you want to be a loving, caring kind of friend, the first thing you have to do is have your eyes and ears open to notice what the needs are around you. And we miss that sometimes because we're moving fast and we're thinking about our own stuff, which, you know, is understandable. And yet to be called into paths of righteousness is to be people who are observing and listening and looking where are needs that I can give to. What are the people around me that have things going on that maybe just a smile or a kind word or a listening ear or maybe a little gift or maybe some kind of standing up for them that they need? What is it that I can do to bring this kind of peace and shalom in their lives. In other words, if we want to know how we can love well and care for people, we've got to be listening and watching. St. Francis's prayer, you remember this famous one, uh, kind of sums this up. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, your shalom, right? Your healing in people's lives. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. We might add to his prayer, where there is suffering, may I bring relief. Where there is hunger, food. Where there is injustice, justice. And these can happen in little, tiny ways or in big ways. But every day we're presented with myriads of opportunities for this kind of living. I'm going to close with a, a story that my mom shared with me a couple of years ago about a family member He's kind of an uncle, although if you follow logically the family tree, it's one of those uncles like three times removed. But he's part of the family and shows up at gatherings and everything. And um, we look forward to seeing him and hearing some of his crazy stories from the 60s and 70s and the 80s. (laughs) Uh, Life has been tough on this guy, uh, some of it by his own doing and some because life can just do that to us. But uh, the story my mom shared is that at one point, I guess he needed some, some medical care. And so he went to the nearby medical uh, Avenus hospital where many of his and my family members have worked over, over the years. And he got the care there. Then, uh, I guess due to some misunderstandings, he thought that maybe a family member had offered to pay or that it was covered or he had insurance or something. Anyway, every time a bill came in the mail, he just assumed whatever we assume when we throw bills in the drawer <laughs> and he threw them in the drawer and they piled up and he just ignored them. Well, you know, well, what eventually happened, uh, the hospital stopped sending him bills and turned him over to another agency that would handle him a little more roughly, uh, collections. If you've been in collections, you know, these are not the, uh, the people who come and offer you cookies because you're having a bad day. Uh, they, so they came after him, like they do, threatening all kinds of things. And by that time, you know, if you call the hospital, their billing department's not all that thrilled with you either. And so he didn't know what to do. And so finally, out of desperation, one day he grabs the drawer full of bills and paperwork and everything that he barely looked at. And he brought it in to the hospital. He found the nearest receptionist 
whose job was answering phones or something and dumped the pile on the desk and said, help me. (laughs) The woman at the desk had some options, I'm sure. But she chose to drop everything and to begin sorting through this messy pile of bills and papers to make some some sense out of it. Finally, uh, the woman, another one of her coworkers who came and also was helping, finally they left taking the papers that mattered uh, into the back office. And, uh, and when they came back, they handed him a bill that had been stamped paid in full and said, uh, have a nice day, Mr. Jester. He was shocked and moved. And he called his sister who called my mom and she eventually told me the story and I've been moved and thought, if that's why we have Avenus hospitals, count me in. <clears throat> because that's the kind of thing we often would call mercy, right? Because he didn't, didn't deserve it really. But not far from mercy is also this idea of righteousness and justice. Sometimes we put the two apart, but in the Bible, they're very closely related because righteousness and justice bring about shalom and healing and wholeness in people's lives. And whether that be through mercy or love or whatever, it is right and it is just and is what God desires for people, is what he's called us to. Not all of us can forgive hospital bills, though I imagine a few of us could. But every one of us could and can help someone through a confusing pile of bills, right? Every one of us can be kind to someone who is a little off. Every one of us can be welcoming to those who are usually shunned. Every one of us can be inclusive of people that are cast on the margins. Every one of us can do justice for the least of these God's children. Because if we're open to the God who is our good shepherd will guide us in everyday, ordinary kind of ways down paths of righteousness and justice for his name's sake. In other words, when we watch and listen for these opportunities and we follow them and do them, it brings glory to God. And it brings out the joy and beauty and luxury of life. So this week, especially in your ordinary flat road kind of days, be attentive, don't crash, (laughs) and listen and watch because you might be being led down these paths by God to little acts or big acts of righteousness and justice and goodness for you, your family, your neighbors, your community, and in that God's name will indeed be glorified. So may God go with you through this week.